what I've just stumbled across is a bit wild, but I, I knew, I knew that I'd seen this portrait somewhere else, yeah? Gone to Google Images, and it's the, it's the same portrait. I'm Verizo, and you're listening to brand new Search History. Hey, I'm really excited to be back. Um, This is basically just going to be a podcast where I look at black British figures from the past and then try and link their stories to this weird technological future that we're all living in now but before anything else I'm a writer yeah so I'm not a historian I'm not even in education right now so to start this journey I thought I'd talk to someone who is far more involved in that world than I am hi hi sis how are you I'm good how's your life I called Maya, my younger sister. So she's doing her A-levels right now and probably has a far more recent memory of how history is taught in the British education system than what I do. Yeah, so what are your what are your memories of learning history in school? Um, well, like, earlier school, it was just kind of like Saxons and Aztecs and stuff about Henry VIII. And then later on, we did, like, Germany and Cold War, and that's pretty much it. Do you remember any black British history at all? Not really. Like, I remember in year eight, we did a little bit on slavery, but, like, all they did really was they made us watch Roots and then was like, okay, that's what happened. But then, like, British black history, we didn't learn anything. For black history, they used to do one assembly and then no one would speak about it for the rest of the month and that was it. I'm seven years older than Maya, but this basically aligns with what I remember from school as well. The only time black people came up in any of my classes was studying the slave trade. And even then, the British contribution was seriously downplayed. Like, the idea that there were black people actually here, on this island, and had been for a long time, completely glossed over. Still, Maya does remember one black person in Britain that came up in her classes. A lot of piano. Um, who was, like, a revolutionaryist guy, I don't know, um, from the slave trade, and he got, he got emancipated because he, like, earned his freedom and then moved to London, I think, and changed his name and then, like, got married and carried on, like, trying to get slavery abolished. And when you learnt about him, was this, like, a big topic in your history lessons? Uh, not really. I think we did on him for about a lesson, maybe two, and then watched Roots for the rest of the term. Today, or the day when this episode comes out, is the International Day for the Abolition of Slavery. So, from what Maya has said, Olaudah Equiano seems like the perfect person to start with. And the thing about Equiano, which makes him such a great person for a half-hearted historian like me to learn about is that he actually wrote and published a memoir, which I ordered. Mine was the Penguin Classics edition from 2003. I just got my mail. All right, The Interesting Narrative and Other Writings by Olorda Equiano. Flicking through it now. Oh, that's so funny. It's got, hang on, it's got, <laughs> it's a secondhand copy, so it's got um someone else's bookmark in it even. A lot of Equiano's on the cover, in a red jacket, looking proper regal, actually. Yeah, let's get into it. I boiled the kettle, made a cup of tea, snuggled up on my sofa and started reading. I was named Alauda. 
which in our language signifies a vicissitude or fortune also. Equiano was born in 1745. As a child, he was kidnapped from his home in what we know as Nigeria and sold into slavery. At first, between African masters in villages far, far away from his own, and then to Europeans, whose command of ships and water and their bizarre way of speaking convinced him that they were dark beings in possession of magic. I was now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits and that they were going to kill me. His terror is palpable. It steams off the pages, and although we know the intentions weren't to eat him, Equiano's treatment and that which he witnesses is as horrific as is possible to imagine. From childhood, his life and person is passed through the hands of many different masters, each renaming him something different, his own name completely erased and taken away from him. He was baptised in England as Gustavus Vassa. My captain and my master named me Gustavus Vassa. When I refused to answer to my new name, which at first I did, it gained me many a cuff. So at length I submitted, and was obliged to bear the present name by which I have been known ever since. I knew little about the experience of those enslaved in Britain, and as with my sister's education, anything I had learned had always been taught with some separation. It provided a distance that this book absolutely tore through. From the various scenes I had beheld on shipboard, I soon grew a stranger to terrors of every kind, and was, in that respect at least, almost an Englishman. I have often reflected with surprise that I never felt half the alarm at any of the numerous dangers I have been in that I was filled with at the first sight of the Europeans. In 1765, still only 20 years old, Equiano has gone through several different masters and is purchased by a Quaker in Georgia, USA. This particular master promises Equiano his freedom for a price. In today's equivalent, that price would be something around the sum of £6,000. Yeah, 6k to be a free man. So, Equiano begins trading across his master's shipping routes, hoping for a sum large enough to buy back the rights to his own existence. Every day now brought me nearer my freedom and I was impatient till we proceeded again to sea so that I might have an opportunity of getting a sum large enough to purchase it. And although the desire to see Equiano free is intense at this point, it's hampered by the severity of the global situation, like one man's freedom is not enough. On his mission, he constantly encounters other enslaved people being tortured and abused in the most inhumane of ways and can do nothing but witness. And in such a scenario, what does freedom even mean? He's no longer the little boy from the small village that he once was. What free life in this western clusterfuck of a world has he to return back to? Eventually, Equiano does make enough money to be granted freedom. I, who had been a slave in the morning, trembling at the will of another, was become my own master and completely free. I thought this was the happiest day I had ever experienced, and my joy was still heightened by the blessings and the prayers of the sable race. As a free man, he dreams of returning to London, where he'd spent time in childhood. And after many years of travelling the world, doing similar trading business as he had been doing as an enslaved worker, he does return to England. He involves himself with the abolitionist movement as one of the Sons of Africa, a small group of black men who actually campaigned for the end of slavery. He even writes to the Queen herself to express his distress. March the 21st, 1788. I had the honour of presenting the Queen with a petition on behalf of my African brethren, which was received most graciously by Her Majesty. A copy of that letter is published in his autobiography. I supplicate Your Majesty's compassion for millions of my African countrymen who groan under the lash of tyranny in the West Indies. 
But there's a lot of things about Equiano's story that messed with my misconceptions about that time. Like, his autobiography was a bestseller within his lifetime and published across multiple territories. No doubt that probably helps the abolitionist cause, but it seems strange to think that a nation that had grown up with slavery would be so eager to read these viciously dark accounts of what they'd just accepted as normal. But then, Ecriano's story is not a universal narrative, right? Like, he never worked in plantation fields like the majority of enslaved Africans, and he was taught to read and write. What's more, as a free man, he actually used to pick out Africans that he thought would make good slaves for other traders and plantation owners. And there's another thing about Equiano's autobiography that isn't quite adding up for me. It's this portrait on the cover. This gentleman, these eyes that follow you around the room, and this niggling feeling that I've actually seen this portrait somewhere else before. I'm in the back of a library right now, so I have to be a bit quiet, but I've just gone back and had a look at my notes about other 18th century black British figures that I'd come across before, and I saw the name Thomas Peters. Thomas Peters was another 18th century black figure. He was also Nigerian and was also sold into slavery, but became a black loyalist, which meant he fought for the side of the British in the American Revolutionary War, under the promise of freedom. Anyway, back to the library. The image that's used for Thomas Peters on his Wikipedia page is the same portrait that is on the cover of Olorda Equiano's autobiography. It's the exact same portrait. But it wasn't just here where I found this portrait. A quick internet search of another 18th century black figure and... Just search for Otaba Koguano, who was born in Ghana, sold into slavery, and then also had his memoirs published like Alorda Equiano did. And like, I've just typed his name into Google now, gone to Google Images, and it's the, it's the same portrait. So who is it really? This painting is basically being used across the internet as a catch-all portrait for any prominent black person in the 1700s. Which is totally weird, right? Because it's such a grand-looking portrait, you'd think history would remember who it is. And this painting is a known confusion. There's an article by John Maiden published in Apollo magazine in 2006 that explains the speculation about this painting. Initially, the portrait was given to the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter, of which Maiden used to be the director, by an art dealer in 1943. At the time, the painting was credited as Black Boy by the painter Joshua Reynolds. Yeah, Black Boy. It's patronising and ugly and just a bit gross, really. But there are a few paintings by Reynolds that feature anonymous black people from that time. There's another work of his called A Young Black Man, which is part of the Tate collection of a black man. But the subject of that painting is now thought to be a servant of the name Francis Barber. So, hey, like, nobody wants to remember black people. This is another example. It sucks, but there's nothing too amiss here yet, right? Until the 60s. Maiden's essay details two key things that happened during the 60s in regards to this mystery painting. One, the idea that the painting was by Reynolds is just dismissed by the art historian Ellis Waterhouse. So, if not Reynolds, who painted it? I went to the National Portrait Gallery to find out more about the artists of that time. So, I'm currently outside the National Portrait Gallery. Actually, I'm in Trafalgar Square, it's very busy. And 
there's about 45 minutes till the gallery closes, so I'm not going to waste any time. I'm just going to go in and have a look. Maiden provides arguments to attribute the painting to Alan Ramsey, an artist whose career never quite reached the heights of Reynolds during their lifetimes. But he does have a self-portrait hanging up in the gallery that I went to have a look at to see if I could learn more about him. I'm in room 12 of the National Portrait Gallery and there's a self-portrait of Alan Ramsey painted between 1737 and 39. Uh, it says oil on canvas. It looks quite stern actually in this portrait of him. So funny expression that he's chosen to paint himself with. There's a bit of text about his life. Also, the info card on the painting listed so many other painters by surname with like little to no context as if I'm just going to know who they are. I hate it when museums do that. Like, please, not all of your visitors are already experts in 18th century portraiture. Anyway, whatever. Here's what it said at the bottom. In 1761, it was Ramsay, not Reynolds, who was appointed painter to the king. So that's interesting that in 1761 there it was between him and Reynolds about who would become painter to the king. So Alan Ramsay was a big deal, if still in Reynolds' shadow, because the royals were at least considering him to be their painter in residence. So the subjects of his paintings were likely to be a big deal as well, right? And you remember I said there were two things that happened in the 60s in regards to this painting. One being that the Reynolds attribution was cast into doubt. But the second was that in 1961, the then director of the British Museum, William Fagg, put forward a suggestion of who the subject of the painting might be. And as I learnt more about this suggestion and his reasoning, everything just started to seem really really fishy to me. I wanted to speak to a royal portraitist to ask their thoughts but <laughs> I'm a bedroom podcaster. I don't have access to them man and I'm a modern girl in it so I went to the next best thing. My name is Bernice Melenga. I'm 22. I'm a photographer. I mostly document nightlife, uh, queer nightlife specifically but I also archive and I do this through my hashtag friends on film. So if you search that up, you'd see a lot of my photography going back to 2015, 2016. Bernice photographs club royalty. They're the resident photographer for free club nights around London, Babes, Pussy Palace and ABOE or a bit of everything and so many other parties up and down the UK. They've taken candid snaps of artists like Erica Badu and SZA and their work has been featured across magazines. If you know anything about queer black nightlife in the capital, you know Bernice's work. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I'm small, small the go-to. Bernice's approach to capturing their subjects is the complete opposite of straight-faced 18th century portraiture. In fact, moving away from that is kind of the reason why they're the go-to. They weren't really visuals like kind of like what I was doing. Not to say oh, I'm really unique, but I just didn't see that many. It's really rare where I think a lot of people see themselves smiling, especially because, especially around that time, 2016, I would say, there was just a lot of, like, polished photography and it's like, you know, everyone's, like, looking immaculate and just, like, you know, no one's really smiling. And just to have fun, you know, picture in the moment and just having that showcased all the time was just very, I wouldn't say different, but it was just nicer to see. And I think that's why a lot of my pictures are around joy, I think. What Benny's has is a good eye. 
So I wanted to get Bernice's perspective on the anonymous painting and William Fagg's suggestion. I decided to play a game with Bernice to see if Ramsey is as accurate a painter as I suspect. Um, all right, so I'm gonna show you a couple pictures now. So these are two portraits of um, Queen Charlotte. Do you know about Queen Charlotte? No. There's no reason why you would. Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about no queens and kings, you know what I mean, for this here so, in the UK. Queen Charlotte um, was married to King George III. She's from a royal family okay. in Portugal. Okay, come on. And it's like speculated by some that she may have been black. I'm going to show you two portraits of this woman. Mm-hmm. This is Queen Charlotte painted by Johann Zoffany in the year 1765. What are your thoughts on this painting as I've just described? <laughs> Beautiful gowns. No, I'm joking. Um, definitely like white, white passing. You know, um, I wasn't really expecting to see anybody else other than a white woman, even though, like, you know, the descendants and all of this stuff, but pale with, like, rosy, rosy blush cheeks. And then she's got, like, this really paying necktie type thing with, like, lace, and it's, like, blue. It's a really nice blue. It's, like, kind of blue I wanted my hair, but whatever. Anyway, her waist is snatched. Now look at Bernice's reaction when I show them a picture of Queen Charlotte but painted by Alan Ramsey instead. Stop! <laughs> Stop! She straight up looks like she's like mixed race or like her face, her nose. I can see her nose. In the other one, I didn't even mention her nose. She looks a bit more pale. Looks pale but not like, not like white people pale. Like literally mixed race person who hasn't been on holiday in a bit. This looks like someone who used to live in Portugal who now lives in the UK. This is a whole different person. Oh my God. The first image you showed me is a whole ass white woman. Do you know what the first image looks like? No, the first image looks like the mother and the other one looks like this is the daughter that she had with like a, a black person. <laughs> literally, literally. Okay, look, this isn't a foolproof litmus test. If Queen Charlotte did have black ancestors, they were likely from the 13th century and probably too far removed to even be evident but genetics are weird, whatever, you know, I just feel like this proves that Ramsey was pretty accurate at seeing the nuances in people's ethnic features, at least. And so if he was going to paint a black subject, he'd probably, he'd probably do a good job of it, right? This is where William Fagg's suggestion comes in. He identified the mystery man in the portrait as Almano Lauda Equiano, based on this little portrait engraving of Equiano that was present um, when his autobiography was first published. Which is fair enough, right? It makes sense. Until, <laughs> until I actually saw this second portrait. Remember how I said it was a bit fishy? Okay, here's me showing the mystery painting to Bernice. So, it's a good-looking brother who's dark skin, really, like, got nice skin, to be honest. Uh, he's wearing, like, a red jacket with um, a white shirt underneath that goes up to his neck. But, yeah, it's dark skin, nice nose, big nose, big lips, and hair. Um, definitely afro hair, but he's, like, worn it in a way. Like, you know how that... Is it like them judges? It was the style of the time, I can tell, but... It's cute or whatever, but yeah, this is defo a black person, dark-skinned black person. And now the other engraving of Alauda Equiano. Does that okay? Does that look like the same person to you? 
No. Like, the facial features are a bit different, but I feel like... Hmm, it's a bit hard because it's black and white, so I'm like, what's the tone, you know? But the hair is different here. They look like two different people, though. It's the nose. I'm so confused. I don't like this game. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say, like, looking at those two pictures... That is the same person? No. Like, even the way the cheekbones and the face, facial structure, and the nose. The nose is too... It's smaller. But at least got the full lips, so... But the nose... Look at that, the cheekbones. Even the eyebrows, like, just the forehead, the T-zone area. Bernice doesn't think they're the same person. I don't think they're the same person. But because one man somewhere in history said that they looked similar, now this painting is on the cover of a Lauda's autobiography. Like, what is going on here? And if it's not a Lauda Equiano, is it Thomas Peters? Is it Osiba Kugawano? Like, who is he really? And how should history and the internet be remembering him? John Maiden's essay does provide an answer. The man in the painting probably isn't allowed at Equiano, nor is it Thomas Peters or Otto Kuguano, though it was speculated that it could have been for a time. Maiden suggests that the man in question is actually Ignatius Sancho, another abolitionist from the 18th century who was also a really talented composer. This is his minuet in G minor in the background for educational purposes, played by the Afro-American Chamber Music Society Orchestra and conducted by Janice White. Looking at other depictions of Sancho, so like there's another portrait of him by Robert Gainsborough, for example, there are, to my eye at least, closer similarities than between the painting and Equiano's portrait, but still not that close. Since Maiden's essay was published, though, the painting had been credited by the Ram in Exeter as possibly Ignatius Sancho. Possibly. Is that really good enough? Uh, right, Ignatius Sancho. Have you heard of him? He was actually born on a slave ship, travelling from the west coast of Africa. Came to England and he rose to the top of fashionable society. And he was actually the first person of African origin to vote in Britain back in 1774. His life is extraordinary and it's now been made into a play called Sancho, an act of remembrance. This clip is from a BBC World Africa broadcast in 2018 that I found archived on YouTube. The play was written by the actor Patterson Joseph. You might best know him from Peep Show or Babylon. But Patterson is also responsible for bringing the story of this mystery painting back into recent conversation. He actually requested through Art UK that the Ram remove this possibly Ignatius Sancho credit, stressing that opinion shouldn't be presented as fact. Here's what he wrote on, um, on Art UK's website. He says, I urge them, them being the international art community, 
to make every effort to properly conduct investigations to identify and name these people. If they do not do this, they perpetuate the idea that black people may have contributed to the riches of Europe and America, but are in no way worthy of being acknowledged as the human beings they were. Maiden then responded, also through Art UK, If our perception of historic black portraiture is to develop in the future, then curators and art historians should not be deterred from freely expressing their ideas. Outrage certainly draws attention. Evidence advances knowledge and understanding. And looking through the comments discussing the painting on Art UK's website, it seems that certain commenters are still not convinced that it's Sancho in the portrait, nor even that the portrait is by Ramsey at all. So where does that leave us? I want to go back to the phone call I had with my sister Maya, to something else that she mentioned. Now that you're older, have you learnt more about British history that's not just like kings and queens? Yeah, definitely. But I wouldn't say I've learnt much from school. Like all the history that I've researched myself, it's done by me. Like it's not been educated at all. Where are you learning like what you have learnt from? Uh, books. Um, I went to a museum in Liverpool a few years ago. Um, the internet as well. The internet. The internet is where many of us turn to to learn about our history, because we're not learning about it anywhere else. Now, I can forgive Penguin perhaps for using the painting on the 2003 edition of Equiano's memoirs, as Maiden's essay wasn't published until 2006. I'd like to hope that they'd publish and acknowledge correction in any future editions, but for us, every time we go on the internet and we miscredit or misidentify this painting or others, we're also contributing to this misinformation. It's not just the international art community that needs to be more careful, it's their social media teams, it's Wikipedia editors, it's people sharing little snippets of Black History Month content on Twitter and using these anonymous photos for for anybody, you know, with no context. And it's not just this painting, and it's not just one person's fault. The whole massive archival network that is the internet has has kind of evolved in ways that ensure it's easier to forget black artists. Here's Bernice again. I was studying fine art and I did photography for a year in college and I hated it and then I just dropped out. Even like when I was in those courses, you know, when we'd be researching photographers and this and that, they weren't bringing forward any any black photographers, let alone POC photographers. It was all like all these old white men from God knows where taking pictures of shit on the street and we had to go and recreate that. And I was like, this is so dead. Like, this is not fueling anything in me. If I wanted to specifically find black photographers, I have to write black photographers from this. Black women photographers, black, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, why do I have to do all that shit, you know? It may not seem a big deal to most that it takes a little extra time on a Google search or that you have to dig through a couple more websites to find photo credit for a black artist. But these things are important because art is a major thing that we look back on to make sense of history. And if we don't make an effort to remember and correctly archive our artists now, online and offline, then who knows what kind of greatness we're letting history forget. The kind of photos I was researching for, like, you know, archive of black photographers, it was like literally the everyday people. You know, when people look at past street photography, a lot of them are just regular people walking down the street, kids, all that kind of stuff, people in their communities, um, people and their friends. Sometimes it turns out the photographer ends up being a big deal, like, many years later, and the people they documented were like, I don't know, 
the civil rights people and just like, you know, Harlem Renaissance people and all that kind of stuff. Thank you to my sister Maya and to Bernice Malengo for talking with me for this episode. Thank you also to Yvonne Shellen for being the voice of Olada Equiano. Theme music is by Azadi MP3. Go stream her EP Summer in the Crypt. It's out now. Additional music by Yvonne Schelling. All the articles referenced will be up alongside this episode on my website, varayudzo.com. Please tell a friend if you liked and do subscribe because there are more episodes to come. See you in two weeks.